Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. First round of French elections in the books have a runoff now on, uh, what is it, May 7th, couple of weeks away. Buck Sexton here with all of you. Thank you so much for joining. we got to talk about French politics and American politics today and the crossovers therein, at least of, of ideas, of situations. There will be similarities that are worth discussing, to be sure. We'll also get into the latest on uh, Afghanistan. We've got fantastic guest lined up for you tonight. A packed show. Selena Zito will be joining to tell us about what Trump voters think 100 days, almost 100 days into a Trump administration. Uh, we'll also get into the latest from the left, Bernie Sanders, uh, what the Hillary people are up to, what Bernie Sanders is saying about America, the policies of the Trump administration. We, we've just got, and then we'll also talk about Afghanistan later on in the show. A terrible attack, one of the worst single casualty incidents for the for Afghan forces of the entire uh, post 9/11 Afghanistan war. Uh, what does that mean for the country? We've got a, an excellent guest, a, a former air combat controller, seen much of uh, what we're talking about in terms of fighting the enemy with his own eyes. We'll get into that later on in the show as well. But first, we got French elections and a government shutdown in this country looming. I, I want to take these in uh, in reverse chronological order, if I may. So we'll, maybe we'll get into the French elections. What I see in them, what it means for us uh, a bit later on in this hour. Oh, and by the way, if you have any thoughts on any of this, of course, love to hear from you. 844 900 2825-844-900-BUCK. Um, so, we have a looming shutdown of the government. Now, we've been here before. This is, to borrow from Yogi Berra, uh, deja vu all over again. And, and look at that. It's French, too. It's, we're tying everything together here. Mais oui, bien sûr. Uh, we've been at this government shutdown debate, and, and you will recall that the Republicans made the decision uh, last time around after the midterms to just fund the thing. Just forget it. We, we, we don't want to fight this out. We want to just push it as far into the future as we can get away with right now. And it just all continues as it had in the past. Right. No, no real difference. No, no change at all. Republicans didn't want to fight. They wanted to see what happened with the election now here we are. You have Republican majorities in the House, in the Senate. Of course, got President Trump, Republican, in the White House. And there's a lot of posturing. There's grandstanding. There will be people making points here and there about what project they think should get funded that may not get funded or what should be defunded that would normally get funded and a lot of back and forth. My expectation, my prediction here, 
is that status quo will be too powerful to overcome. And status quo is the continuation of too much spending, the continuation of a budget. Remember, we haven't had a real budget now in, what, nine years? Uh, but a continuing resolution, <laughs> a continued continuing resolution, a CR that just allows for everyone to keep their constituencies happy, to keep their special interests happy, to make it likely that they'll hold on to their jobs, both Republican and Democrat, when they're up for re-election. Because the goodies stop. Nobody wants to tell anyone that they have to... Uh, do more with less, that there might be some form of austerity that we can't just keep spending. So the spending will likely continue. But in the meantime, you have a big political fight. I, by the way, I, I could be wrong about that. And I'll get into why I could be wrong in a second. But my expectation is that the government will be funded. Y you can't overstate the optics of all this. You have the possibility of a government shutdown on the hundredth day, I mean, the funding runs out on Friday night at 11.59 p.m., or 11.59 uh, Eastern, right? Yeah, 11.59 p.m. EDT this Friday. So, uh, April 28th. So if there's going to be a shutdown, it would, in fact, start 100 days into Trump's presidency. Now, I think it's interesting that the conventional wisdom shows up once again. The conventional wisdom, of course, is that Republicans will be blamed for a shutdown, and therefore, politically, it is disadvantageous and unwise to allow a shutdown. But maybe, given that this entire presidency, including during the election season and now since President Trump has taken office, has been largely a repudiation of conventional wisdom as a concept in politics, right? What Conventional wisdom, no such thing. Maybe it'll be different this time. I don't know. I think, once again, the, uh, the inertia of status quo will be the paramount force at work here. I think that's most likely, meaning that the change what we've already got, which is just a series of continuing resolutions one after another, would require people to take risks that I'm not sure, and I'm including the Congress here. This isn't all. This isn't, of course, all on Trump. Trump could veto it, though. The mechanics of this, just so we're all on the same page, you've got Republicans with majorities in the House and the Senate, and a Republican in the White House. One would think, oh, they should just they can just go forward with this, but no, they can't pass a or they can't change around um, what the current spending bill would be without Democrats. Letting it go through, Democrats can filibuster this. So once again, we're at a point where the Democrat minority seeks to uh, dictate the actions of the majority in the Senate and in the House. And the Trump administration is very aware of, once again, the way this will be looked at, that this is 100 days. You may have a government shutdown on the 100th day of a Trump presidency. Unless they can come to a deal. Well, why would that be so difficult? What are the issues at play here that might create a shutdown scenario? Never mind the more difficult conversation about how we're still spending too much money. I, I don't know when mathematically it becomes inevitable that we reach a crisis point, but it is mathematically inevitable, right? At some point, it's just too much debt. It's too much spending 
I don't know what it is. Everyone knows that's real, but nobody really says when that will happen because tough to tell. Tough to tell. Uh, we're not we're not having that discussion right now. Not really. There'll be some. There'll be people in the House and Senate who say, oh, well, we're spending so much money. We should rein this in. It was disheartening to many of us, I think, when there was that one moment where Republicans said, fine, if it means we can decrease the increase in spending, not even a true cut in government spending, we'd be willing to go through a sequestration process which would force less government spending than had been previously planned. Remember, it's a decrease in the size of the increase in spending. It's not even a real cut, right? This is like me saying to you, you're spending $100 a month too much on your credit cards. You know, you got to stop and start paying it down. You say, well, I'll spend $90 more a month than I than I make in my on my credit card. And you consider that to be, you know, f- fiscally sound future uh, conduct, right? That's what you should do going forward. Not really a great way to handle the problem, but at least it's less bad than what you were doing before, right? We didn't even stick with that. Oh, sequestration, it was too painful. It was a it was dumb cuts, we were told. Okay, well, any cuts that we end up doing, it seems, turn out to be dumb cuts. But nobody wants the stuff to stop. It seems like the system can just keep on shouldering a burden of debt that never gets addressed. And... Spending is more important or spending is more popular than austerity. We are in a time of populism. We have a populist Republican president who has been successful, at least, in defeating a Democrat party that is nothing but rampant populism under a regime of redistribution and excessive spending. That, that, but that's what Democrats are. They're, Democrats are the mob made real through <laughs> through elections. Right. Democrats just represent the the majority that they can cobble together through various coalitions based on interests, usually interests of the government, spending money that it takes from people for certain projects in certain areas. This is what the Democrat Party is. Right? It's the party of the state, for the state, and by the state, and everybody who buys into that can get a piece of the pie. So we have a Republican populist president right now who is saying, okay, well, we're going to do things a little bit differently here. And they're trying to come up with a deal. Where does the deal fall apart on, or where could it fall apart, I should say, on the spending that would go forward under a continuing resolution? Remember, not even a full budget, not not even a real official budget. This is just how we're going to spend going forward. This is making tweaks to uh, what's already in play here. And automatic spending is where all the money is really getting spent. So that's baked into the cake. We're We're looking at little tweaks here and there, but that's where you can start to have a discussion about policy preferences and the changes that people may want in what we're spending money on. Priorities of the administration, right? So the administration wants $30 billion in new defense and border security spending. $1 billion they want, the Trump administration wants, and we'll see if Republicans go along with it, to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. And this is a very poignant political moment. A billion dollars is nothing for the federal government, as you know. A billion dollars is a rounding error. That should be pretty terrifying to those of us that look at what, how many zeros are in a billion and how this is just all money that we owe, money that is supposed to be paid at some point in the future. It's never going to be paid back, but we figure we can just keep running out the clock on this and nothing bad will happen. Anyway, a billion dollars is what... They want to start the wall. That's just the beginning of it. 
Democrats are saying, no, totally unacceptable. I, I was, well, I shouldn't say I was under the impression. I remember when Democrats claimed to also want secure borders. I remember when they were saying that they believed in an orderly immigration system. Now, the arguments that they offer up as to why we shouldn't build the wall, it's pretty fascinating. Here's, here's uh, Nancy Pelosi on why she opposes any money for building this wall. Play it. The president, I think, talking about this wall is expressing a sign of weakness. He's saying, I can't control our borders. I have to build a wall. Yeah, you know, when you put a, a lock on your front door uh, to prevent somebody from just walking into your house, and it will at least force them to break into your house, which is harder to do and adds a layer of security, I guess that's an expression of weakness, right? I mean, N- Nancy Pelosi is... I don't know how anyone who votes for her feels like they shouldn't be ashamed somehow, but but they don't. Uh, they, they keep voting her in. In fact, she was at one point third in line for the presidency. She was the most powerful Democrat in the in the, in the House. It's amazing what what the Democrat Party will push through. Um, but this issue of wall funding is becoming very big. Um, you even have uh, DHS Secretary John Kelly and White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney yesterday talking about whether there could be an agreement here on the wall and the funding for it or not. So will the president go to the mat and insist on funding his border wall as part of the stopgap government funding measure? Well, Dan, I think uh, it goes without saying that the uh, the president has been pretty uh, uh, straightforward about his desire uh, and the need for a, a border uh, wall. So I would suspect uh, he'll he'll do the right thing for sure, but I, I will suspect he will uh, be insistent on uh, on the funding. And you got Budget Director Mick Mulvaney. He's coming out with the following. But I want to ask you a direct question, sir. Sure. Will he sign a government funding bill that does not include funding for the border wall? Yeah, and I think you saw his answer just in your little lead-in, which is we don't know yet. We are asking for our priorities, and importantly, we are offering to give them some of their priorities as well. They've made it very clear they want these um, cost-sharing reduction payments as part of Obamacare. We don't like those very much, but we have offered to open the discussions to give the Democrats something they want in order to get something we want. Why not build a wall? Let's approach it from that perspective. What's the problem? We already have a fence in some places. Does that make us that make us an unwelcoming country? We already have a wall of one kind or another on our southern border along some good stretches here and there. What's the problem with a wall? Why not? A billion dollars for this? Uh, you see, the Democrats don't want to concede any part of Trump's agenda. That's what this really comes down to. It's not about the money. They don't care about spending money. They care about Trump being able to follow through on a promise that he made when he was running for president. If he's able to follow through on the promise, it makes him look like, yes, in fact, he is a president and a man of his word. If that is the case, and so far it has been, he has more credibility and power with his base, which means, and with the Republican Party, which means he has more power to get more things done. They know this. So they don't want to allow there to be any funding for a wall because also have to keep in mind at the end of the day, we've seen a drop in illegal border crossings already with this presidency. If you had a border wall built, and it doesn't have to stop all crossings or But if there's a massive shift from illegals crossing in one area to another without a wall, that's what we would call evidence. 
that maybe this is a good idea if you want to secure the borders. All right, we're going to talk more about the budget showdown and also the French elections. Globalism versus nationalism, my friends. What it means over there, what it means for us over here. 844-900-2825, jam-packed show. Back in a few. Why is there even a discussion about shutting down the government over paying for the wall? Isn't Mexico supposed to pay for the wall? Well, I think, Jim, the president has made very clear that initially we needed to get uh, the funding going, uh, and there's be several mechanisms to make sure that that happens. Uh, that funding piece will happen in due time. Alexis. That is a promise that the I understand president that. made during the campaign. It is, no, again, no, but he also said. Mexico would pay for the wall. Right. And now, now we're having a discussion that no, the government no. shut down no, no. over we, the wall. I, 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 pay right. You know. So a couple things. One, as I pointed out to Jonathan, uh, we feel very confident the government's not going to shut down. Number two is I think the president has been very clear in the past about the fact that, uh, and this is not a new thing, he talked about this, that in order to get the ball rolling on border security and the wall, that he was going to have to use the current appropriations process, but he would make sure that that promise would be kept as far as the payment of it. Democrats care so much about where this money comes from, how much money it will be. Oh, all, all of a sudden they are just... Uh, all about dollars and cents and savings and being good stewards of taxpayer money. Hmm. What a surprise. Uh, This will expose, I think, and this is perhaps the most valuable aspect of this entire discussion over funding for the border wall, you'll see what the Democrats are really all about when it comes to our southern border. A wall is not that expensive. A wall could very easily at least be in the opening phases of of bil- uh, being built, and they will oppose it. They do not want a wall. Why? They've voted in the past for a wall. It has been longstanding U.S. policy to have a wall. Why are they so against us? And it should be noted that I, I you get people go on TV, they go, oh, well, a wall won't work everywhere. Okay, fine, but barriers to prevent illegal entry, be they electronic, a fence, a wall, all three, and drones, and everything else. Why not have that? Uh, Does anybody really think that that wouldn't have a, well, Democrats pretend to think it wouldn't have an impact, but if it wouldn't have an impact, why do they care so much? Usually they're all about infrastructure. The only infrastructure jobs, it seems, Democrats find completely unacceptable are either the Keystone XL pipeline or a wall on our southern border. I think there's something political at stake in both of those issues. Pretty sure it has nothing to do with their objections to the specific project. Certainly, in theory, they're not supposed to oppose that people get jobs paid for by government funds, or in the case of Keystone XL, it wouldn't have been that, but um, but that people make money creating infrastructure in this country that is cleared, at least, if not paid for by the federal government. So why not build a wall? They're going to shut down the government over this, perhaps. I think it's unlikely. But think about that. What if it really just comes down to this? All president, by the way, this is a negotiation. It will be fascinating to see how it unfolds in the days ahead. But forget about all the other, and there are other issues, right? Democrats want more funding for an Obamacare, part of Obamacare. And uh, But if it all comes down to just this, will, Dem- will Democrats shut down the government because they refuse to appropriate a billion dollars to build a wall on the southern border? That would be very illuminating, my friends, because it would show us just how much they truly oppose a secure southern border. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. The French people must seize this opportunity because the enormous challenge of this election is the wild globalization which puts our civilization at risk. Either we continue to disintegrate uh, without any uh, borders, without any controls, delocalization, unfair international competition, uh, mass uh, immigration, and the free circulation of uh, terrorists, or you choose France. Or you choose France. Uh, That is Marine Le Pen, the second-place finisher in the first round of the French elections, which happened over the weekend. Uh, Usually we don't care about the French election that much, right? I mean, this came up before five years ago. They have five-year terms. When uh, François Hollande, who is a socialist, uh, his big idea was to soak the rich. And you had people like Gérard Depardieu, who's like the... um, He's like a national mascot for France, no? Gérard Depardieu is talking about uh, going to Russia, of all places. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, to avoid French, incredibly high French taxes on super earners. I forget what the top rate was. I think it was something like 70% on, at a certain level. And sure enough, you had individuals who did not like that, and very high earners wanted to leave the country. Uh, and it didn't change anything. Oh, isn't that an interesting lesson that we could take for our own political futures. You see, the reason that we can look at France and care about their election, well, it's it's twofold. One, there are a lot of parallels between the French election and what's going on in this country in our recent election. I'll get into those. Um, they're not exact, right? Every, every election, every country is different, and there's a lot of... So somebody could come on, of course, and say, oh, but Buck, it's, it's really a, a question of you know, French competitiveness vis-a-vis the EU, first and foremost, and they don't have the same immigration issues. Their immigration issues are different. They're based on the superstructure of the EU. I I get all of that, fine, but we'll look at what is similar. You and I will spend our time on what matters for the discussion, which is how we can draw parallels between what's going on there and here. And also, at another level, this is the second thing I had in mind, it takes a bit of the tribalism, political tribalism out of it when we see this playing out, similar dynamics, political dynamics to what we have in our country playing out in another country. And you you see this with more clarity. Right? This is like when someone asks you, oh, this is what's going on in, in at work or in my relationship, my love life. And you're like, oh, well, you, know, you got to do A, B and C. And, and you're right. And you know you're right. And you could fix the problem for them. And you think, well, why is this person, why am I in such a good position to help? It's because you're objective, right? You, you, you're not caught up in uh, either the office politics or work or, or the uh, you know, romance outside of office or whatever it is, right? You, you can be objective. So we have an added layer of objectivity when we look at what's happening in the French election. So here's what happened. And we'll get into the Trumpism, nationalism, globalism, all the isms that we care about. Uh, and understand that there are very important lessons for us, as well as a possible impact on us, too, although I think it will be delayed. But first, the results, and then the why it matters. The results were as follows. Macron, who is the centrist candidate for a political system that right now 
doesn't have a whole lot of centrism going on. It's fractured. But he was the consensus candidate of the French elites, a consensus candidate when there is no consensus. So that's an interesting position for him to be in from the start. You have Macron coming in first place with 24%. You have Le Pen coming in second with 21.3%. Marvailleux pour Le Pen, the first time in decades that the National Front has become a legitimate major political party with results to back it up, right? And when I say legitimate, I'm not passing judgment one or the other. I just mean the votes matter here. Second place finisher, she's now going into a runoff with Macron. And then you have a bunch of others. Uh, Fillon, who was the center-right, sort of the heir to Sarkozy's uh, Republican Party, or Republican Party, and uh, Mélenchon, who was, I believe, the commie in this whole picture, right? There was a communist running. And then Amon, who was the uh, sort of social, more traditional socialist. I think he was the, from Hollande's party. Hollande, Francois Hollande. I'm having fun with all these French accents. Some of them I'm probably butchering, by the way. My French has gotten really rusty. Um, and whenever I do a French accent now, I, I sound like a guy who just walks around with a beret and like a giant wheel of brie and a baguette, and that's all he ever does. Um, but Hollande is not even running because he's so unpopular. He's like, I'm out. This has been It's been real, folks. I'm done. And you get to this moment in time when everybody was uh, on edge. The financial markets and the economic uh, elites around the world were on edge because, well, if Macron doesn't want, Le Pen is saying, or Le Pen, let's call her Le Pen. We're Ameri- it's America, right? I'm going to speak American now. Le Pen. So uh, she wants to get the French out of the EU. She wants to uh, cut down dramatically on immigration. She wants protectionism. She wants trade tariffs. Uh, She wants to keep and even expand the welfare state for pensioners, their version of Social Security. And so it's a economic and ideological nationalism. She calls it a patriotism, of course, but this is one of the fundamental debates of our time. What is the difference in a globalized world between patriotism and nationalism? It is... Where there's really a fight now over nationalism, should it have a such a negative connotation? It's so easy to put national socialists together, and all of a sudden people go, oh my gosh, Nazis, right? Well, not all nationalism is Nazism, obviously. Um, and the Front National, uh, the National Front, the uh, FN party that Le Pen and her father before her um, are at the head of, has an economic agenda that in many ways mirrors what we've been told Trump wants to do in this country and has begun to do. Because there are problems in France like there are problems here. Again, variations, but they're at baseline similar. Uh, But before I get to Le Le Pen, sorry, Marine Le Pen, before I get to Marine Le Pen and what she thinks and, and will do, and by the way, I think she's going to lose. Uh, which I will admit, I fall on the conventional wisdom here. But the the Trumpist candidate in France, I don't believe, will upset the apple cart quite as much as Donald Trump did here. Uh, she already has, in a sense, and in, over the long term, I think there's the handwriting's already on the wall here about where French politics will be going in the future, but maybe not. Um, but before I get into Le Pen, just Macron. Who's this guy? He's an investment banker. Okay, he's a went to fancy schools. He was the uh, economic minister for a little while. Uh, Young guy, like 37 years old. I mean, he's two years older than me. And he 
is now the the consensus the global consensus candidate for well the globalist I should say consensus candidate uh, and he wants to increase competitiveness he wants to knock down trade barriers he wants more free trade more free markets economic freedom uh, cut down the size of the state where possible and stay within the EU and you know he's what we would think of as the international elites and the way that they view economics and politics he is completely palatable and acceptable to them as i said he is the the consensus candidate in a in an election where there is no consensus about what should happen here but he's the closest thing to consensus they can get and he said some funny stuff. I mean, he said that, uh, for example, this, this was a good line. I give this guy props. High five for this, right? Macron back in the day said of Francois Hollande, who's a socialist, you know, like socialism, what they have in Venezuela, bad things happen. Of course, it didn't happen in France, but they're starting from different places. Uh, Macron said that Hollande's tax plan, where he was just going to soak the rich, would turn France into, quote, Cuba without the sun. Pretty, pretty good stuff for Macron on that. I got to give him, got to give him props on that one. Um, but does he have a broad-ranging vision for what it means to be French? Does he offer anything really to the underemployed, the unemployed, and the down and out in France? You're you're seeing, of course, one of the biggest parallels with the rise of Trump in this country, which is that there are people living in France, just like people here in this country, who feel like they are left out of the political conversation who are sick of the political correctness around terrorism. France has been hit with horrific mass casualty attacks in Nice, in Paris, and elsewhere, but the biggest ones are Nice and Paris. Uh, France has embraced for decades now this very multilateral, multinational EU approach to its economy and is part of this super state that is the EU, the largest economic I mean, the, the largest single economy in the world is the Eurozone. All right, it is larger than our economy. Many countries put together, but it's larger than ours. And what does that mean if you're a French uh, machinist or a French truck driver out of work? Up in the north, in particular, is where Le Pen did best, although there are other places as well. The French interior, the French hinterland, the French equivalent to, I don't know, Appalachia, did well with Le Pen, or Le Pen did well with them. Why is that? They feel left out of the political conversation. They feel like there's nothing the state really offers them. And on top of that, you have that layer of scorn, of elitist outlook on all things. In fact, the people of France, I'm sure, have been subjected to, based on the way that elite progressives there and here view immigrants and immigration, I'm sure those who are struggling to make ends meet in France find themselves lectured about how superior and fantastic as a general, as just in general, immigrants are to native-born Frenchmen. And they probably get sick of that. Uh, the bowing down and the, the genuflecting to mass immigration and uh, the multicultural ethic that has dominated in this country as well as in France among progressives, they're probably sick of that. Just as in this country, we had President Trump running and said, it was said over and over that he was a, they were said at one point he was an anti-Semite, of course, said tons of times he was racist, he was sexist, he was, he, he was all of the isms, Islamophobic. We hear a lot of that 
echoed with Marine Le Pen as well. Now, I, I don't think that Le Pen's economic programs will work the way that she says they will. And I, I think this is they're heading down some pretty dangerous pathways with it. But I also think and I, I believe that Macron's probably going to win, which is I, I feel self-conscious giving you the wimpy consensus opinion on that. But that is that is the wimpy consensus opinion. I think it's probably right in this case. So, you know, wah, wah, just telling you. Macron will probably win on May 7th. But here's what happens. Uh, the problems that pushed 21% of the French voters to go for Le Pen and that pushed almost 20% to go for uh, Mélenchon, the communist, are not going away. And they're not getting better. And as in this country, we saw the far left and the far right, the Sandernistas and the hardcore Trump base from day one, there were some crossover, right, in, in trade and protection and workers, a, a nationalism for workers that resonated. That's not going away in France. Maybe you get Macron, uh, Macron in, and he, sorry, Macron, we'll do it that way, and he wins. And then the market and the markets have stabilized, I believe, in anticipation of that. In fact, there was a rally today, and I'm not a guy who follows markets closely, but this is all being pointed to. Is see, the guy, the safe guy, is going to win, so we'll all be okay. Uh, maybe that's even true for a few years. But first of all, you could have a terrorist attack between now and May seventh that would change the calculation. I think of many voters. Once again, there, it's not even that Le Pen has a foolproof plan by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not even sure what her plan is to deal with terrorism, but she says that terrorism is a menace and a threat, and people who live in uh, civilized countries are sick of being told, especially in the case of Europe, by the way, it's always that they, they don't assimilate well enough, and that's the problem. And this is what I hear people say in this country who are so-called terrorism experts. Oh, the French don't assimilate their, their uh, religious minority populations, in this case Muslims, well enough, hence terrorism. People hear that and they get understandably upset. You know, France is a a wonderful country and French civilization is a great thing and it's worthy of of defense and it's worthy of being elevated. Uh, and politicians who say that are resonating with the average, well, the average Frenchman, and in this case in America, the average American, at least when we're talking about Trump and Trumpism, in a way that a technocrat, uh, a highly trained, highly competent economic engineer, somebody who's uh, an all-out free trader like Macron, uh, isn't able to resonate in quite the same way. And I know that this is where some of my friends on the on the conservative side, whether we're talking about Trump or uh, or Le Pen, would say that protectionism is doomed to fail, that it's bad, that it's big government, and and that all is true. But you know what also is true is that if you're an out-of-work uh, auto assembly line worker from uh, Michigan, or you're, a, as I said, a, a machinist from northern France who lives in uh, relative you know, economic stagnation, if not despair, you want somebody who at least gives you a sense of identity and belonging to a greater whole and whom you believe, rightly or wrongly, is at least looking out for your interests at some level and understands, yes, even feels your pain, understands the difficulties you face, and lectures about the failures of, Keynes, of Keynesian economics and the need for a more Milton Friedman-based 
free trade, no no uh, no tariff system, and how this will all lift all economic boats, you know, with the rising tide and all that stuff, just doesn't get doesn't feel doesn't serve the need for purpose in day to day life that all of us have in one way or another, whether we fill it with belief in God, religious belief, or for some people, we're talking about just the economy. They want to have a sense that they're part of a greater whole with their country. And they're sick of this being called nationalism and this being talked down to all the time. They like to feel like they're part. Anyway, they're part of a greater something. I'm, the music is playing, which means I've got to run to a break here. One other aspect of uh, Le Pen and Macron that you can expect to see a lot of, my friends, in the uh, in the days ahead, the next two weeks is when we've we can expect a lot of uh, French election coverage to happen. And that is that uh, Macron, I mean, uh, Le Pen is considered the favorite of Russia. She's much more favorable towards Moscow than Macron is. And in fact, you can read people who will tell you that Le Pen's victory would be for the Kremlin a tremendous coup. And it would mean that the the French might be willing to, as we saw with Brexit, go with a uh, Frexit. Uh, France exit from the EU, and with that end of the economic union would be perhaps also major strains on the other unions, NATO perhaps. So that's going to get a lot of of play, as well as any Russian-based hacking group that does anything. I mean, if there was ever a time for Russian trolls in the post-Trump era, uh, post-Trump election era, to make a lot of noise if they want to get attention, it's right now. Already some coverage of this, I see, uh, with a decision um, that, uh, or rather with with a report out, that there are Russian efforts, uh, Russian-attached trolls are going after Macron, trying to help Le Pen. So just, just you wait. If Le Pen is able to beat Macron and you have the victory of French Trumpism, in a sense, in France... We will be told that the Kremlin has won once again by the leftist Democrat media, that this was all that, that there weren't any French people around the country that were just sick of the nonsense from the elites that have been governing them for decades in France. No, no, you know, it's all Putin. He, he just gets whatever he wants. That's what they'll say. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Team Buck phones are open, 844-900-2825, uh, What do you think about the French election? Surprising to you? Any uh, Anyone who thinks that maybe we'll be surprised again uh, with a possible Le Pen win, which which would send a shockwave through the EU and, and it would affect our economy, it's... That's no that's no small thing if that were to happen. Although I think now the the uh, overwhelming odds based on what everyone who does things like puts out odds on this stuff, well, the overwhelming odds thus far are that uh, Macron will be the winner. We will have to see. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Bernie Sanders. And what it means that Bernie Sanders continues to be so popular in this country. 
Um, and you have a Democrat socialist, somebody who honeymooned in the USSR. Where it's, it, it, I don't even know. Uh, think of what that's like. Uh, you know, hey, honey, you know, let's let's go stand in in, in breadlines and go look at the glories of massive cinder block state-sanctioned architecture. It, it, you know, a- astonishing that Bernie Sanders continues to be as popular as he is in some ways until you realize the Democratic Party doesn't really have anything else right now. Opposition to Trump, first of all, there's plenty of Republican opposition to Trump, but also opposition to Trump is not in and of itself sufficient. There has to be something more. They have to offer something in place of uh, Trumpism here in America. Um, but I want I want to talk about Sanders and his appeal. And to uh, to join us in that, we have Heather Wilhelm on the line. She's a National Review columnist and a senior contributor at the Federalist. She has a piece in the Chicago Tribune. Bernie Sanders, King of Dysfunction Junction. Heather, great to have you. <laughs> Good to be here. Uh, and uh, yeah, Dysfunction Junction, indeed. Yeah, in- indeed. Sanders, Sanders is calling out the Democrats, which I, I know they don't much like. I want to have you uh, respond to this, but he's he's coming off this unity tour with uh, Perez who is now most famous from the unity tour for 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 profanity. Uh, But Sanders is saying that the Democratic Party is uh, a failing model. Hey, you know what? What is clear to anyone who looks at where the Democratic Party today is that the model of the Democratic Party is failing. Uh, We have the uh, we have a Republican president who ran as a candidate as the most unpopular candidate in modern history of this country, Republicans control the House, the Senate, two-thirds of uh, governor's chairs. And in the last uh, eight years, they have picked up 900 legislative seats. Clearly, the Democratic Party has got to change. And in my view, what it has got to become is a grassroots party. Now, until the very end, everything he says is true. I don't really know what he means by it has to become a grassroots party, but I'll leave that to you. It's very vague, isn't it? Um, I think, you know, and as, as I think you're right, he's, he's absolutely right. The party is broken. And uh, Tom Perez, the new chair of the Democratic uh, National Committee, is he seems to be, you know, having a breakdown on this tour. As you said, he's cursing up a storm. He apparently sanctioned this T-shirt on the Democratic National Committee website that literally has a swear word on it. Now it has a nice little asterisk on it, but it's uh, very charming. These are people who don't know what to do. Now, I think Bernie Sanders knows exactly what he'd like them to do. He'd like them to veer to the far left and pick up the socialist mantle. I mean, he's been very open about that. What's so funny is that, you know, Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician, according to a recent poll, in America today, which is astounding, really, when you think about it. Um, And that's why the Democrats are reining him in on this unity tour, even though he himself will not say that he is a Democrat. Fifty-seven uh, percent. This is from your Chicago Tribune piece. Fifty-seven percent of registered voters, v- v- voters, pardon me, uh, have a favorable impression of Bernie Sanders. It's astounding. This is a guy who eighty percent of Democrats, by the way, not to interrupt. Sorry. Oh no, no. <laughs> but I mean, a there's a, there's one question. What else do they have, right? B this is a guy who went out there and complains about how many brands of deodorant there are. You know, he's completely wacko, completely out there. He honeymooned in the Soviet I Union. I mentioned that, yeah. And uh, he's the most popular politician in America today. So clearly, you know, we're facing some serious dysfunction on the, on the Democrat Party side. And, you know, I don't know if there was this news today that 
Perez basically said that they were going to blacklist any Democrat that was not fully on board with abortion. Again, if you look at the polls, that's wildly out of line with the mainstream of America. Um, But here we go. We're charging forward. And, you know, to his credit, uh, Bernie Sanders has he has not operated that way in the past. But we're looking at a party that simply does not know what to do, which is amazing, considering that there's dysfunction on the Republican side as well. You'd think that they could they could come up with something. Now, the the obvious next question, I think, would be if we're trying to do a not just an autopsy of the Hillary campaign from the from the past election cycle, but just of the Democratic Party right now more generally. They got Tom Perez out there who who's just acting like a acting like a jerk. I mean, there's no need to be running around cursing and, and rep- as DNC chairman. It just seems bizarre. Um, mm-hmm. But then we look at, well, what could they do to capture the imaginations and the enthusiasm of the Democratic base and move forward? The obvious thing, based on what we're seeing here, would be, well, why not move left like Bernie Sanders? But see, I, I think the Democratic Party is already largely there. I, I think that Hillary was that was sort of the Trojan horse for the progressive left to get into a position of power. And because she's she was acceptable, she was consensus to Democrats. She was uh, tied in with big money and everything else. But I think the party ideologically is already pretty far left. How how would they shift more towards Sandersism? Uh, Sandersism. How would it be more official? Well, you know, it's interesting you 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 mentioned you know that Hillary was quote acceptable, and I think that's <laughs> that could pretty be about. I mean, she wasn't. She wasn't. It's kind of a weird. It's a catch twenty two. Go ahead. No, yeah, and and there was I don't know if you saw this poll. It came out uh, from the Washington Post and I think ABC News that said, uh, you know, while just four percent of Trump supporters say that they would back somebody else if there was a redo the elec- the election, a whopping fifteen percent of Clinton supporters say they would. And this is the Washington Post. I'm quoting them. They would ditch her, and then they say Trump leads in a redo of the 2016 election, 43 percent to 40 percent. And that's after he lost the popular vote, 46 to 44. I mean, that is stunning. 15% of Clinton supporters would just <laughs> goodbye Irene, right? I mean, she was a disastrous candidate. We all know it. And you're right. She was acceptable from the establishment's point of view. But I think the surge for Bernie Sanders shows that people did not like her. They did not want her. And, you know, as I mentioned in my column, you know, Bernie Sanders seems like somebody who might shake his fist at the clouds, but at least he means what he says, right? There's not a whole lot of shit. Yeah, he does talk a lot about billionaires and and too many, you know, yachts and stuff, but the guy does own three houses, as has been pointed out, (laughs) which, you know. That that's yeah, there's a there's a little bit of the hypocrisy issue there, but I, I know that people would say, well, um, at, at least he's not Hillary Clinton. I mean, the hypocrisy there is is on a on a truly epic scale. Um, but by the way, you mentioned the issue about uh, the Democratic Party and having to be uh, pro-choice to be a member. Nancy Pelosi uh, said the following in response to what was it? Was it Perez who said you had mm-hmm. to be? Yeah, Nancy Pelosi said this. Can you well, be you a Democrat? Why don't you interview Tom Perez? Let me ask you this. But can you be a Democrat and support a Democratic Party if you're pro-life? Of course. Of course. I have served for many years in Congress with members who have not shared my very positive, uh, my family would say, aggressive position on promoting a woman's right to choose. Uh, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, it, it might technically be true in the sense that there have been Democrats who have said they are pro-life, but you cannot be in good standing with the modern Democratic Party unless you are pro-abortion. Well, look, I mean, their 2016 platform uh, called for revoking the Hyde Amendment, which is just plain radical, right? 
it's a uh, yeah they've become an abortion party i think that's true and i think the question is that there's an interesting tension here right you've got bernie sanders who's sort of this you know folksy guy who wants quote economic justice but then there's this other wing of the democratic party which is outright, you know, social justice warrior, wacko campus left, right? So there's all these interesting tensions. And then there's the traditional, the, the traditional Democrat voters, like the union types who fled the coup for Trump. So we're at a very, very interesting time, but they clearly can't decide who they want to be. Um, I guess maybe Bernie Sanders is the most normal of the two factions <laughs> when you're looking at the wacky identity politics uh, obsessed left that is, you know, taking over college campuses. But but what, what, what prevents, in your, in your mind, what, what prevents the Democratic Party from going full Sanders? I mean, that's really what I was trying to get at yeah. before. What, why not? I don't see I don't see why they wouldn't. What else? I mean, what else are they going to do? Right. Yeah, I, I think what they went with Hillary because they thought she was electable, which one, obviously she wasn't Two inevitable right. elections that weren't. Um, but but when you look at what she stood for, I mean, Hillary on her campaign uh, website wanted to give Obamacare to illegal aliens. I mean, I, I don't know how much, may, okay, maybe on taxes she's a little less radical than Sanders, but on where, where is the huge divide? In fact, you look at it and the places where Hillary, um, where Hillary differed from Sanders were the places that in the aftermath, in the autopsy of the election, I think one would say that, that's, that, that the electorate was more in line with Sanders than with Hillary, right? I mean, the stuff about trade, and I mean, that, that's how Hillary lost. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, it's hilarious to say this, but Sanders might be a little more likable <laughs> than Hillary Clinton. He is more likable than Hillary Clinton. As goofy as he is, you know, he gets out there and there's, you know, not a smile to be seen, but he's getting out there and he's, you know, he's saying what he believes. At least you can credit him for that. There's no uh, shenanigans, unlike uh, the Clinton campaign. Yeah. And, and by the way, on, on issues like uh, free free college, free, I mean, when you really go down issue by issue, Clinton, I mean, uh, Clinton was just a slightly less radical version of Sanders, but th there were very similar in terms of, you know, Hillary didn't want to go free college, but she wanted even more federal money for college. Well, I mean, we're already spending. I mean, there's already a ton of federal dollars flowing into all these colleges and universities. Um, I'm just trying to think of where, you know, you would think the Democratic Party, if it's trying to get some momentum here, might adopt some of Sanders' positions more officially, but... Uh, they still have a lot of uh, a lot of corporatism at the upper ranks of the DNC. I think that's maybe the dirty little secret here. They don't they don't want to abandon all that. Still a lot of big money donors, a lot of hedge fund billionaires that they want to write checks for this and that issue. Well, you know, and this is what sort of breaks my heart as a quasi libertarian. You know, I describe myself as a conservative slash libertarian. Is that I really think in both parties there's it's trendy to see the government as a solution of first resort, right, which is highly problematic. And yes, you can see that from people's views towards socialism. You know, I grew up in the 80s when we knew the Soviet Union were the bad guys, right? And now we've got Venezuela literally imploding um, and nobody's paying attention. And socialism, if you poll people on it, it polls sky high. Now, is that because people don't know what it really means? I don't know. But it's very interesting to see this happening, you know, just, you know, how many years ago was it that the Soviet Union fell? And here we are, yeah. you know. I, 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 think the, I think the Democratic Party today wants, uh, wants the, the, the benefits of pushing uh, socialist policies without the baggage of having to defend socialist ideology. I know that seems like it doesn't make sense, but it, to me it does. <laughs> like they, they want what you get from socialism without saying we're socialists. Uh, but anyway, that's 
We shall see if I am right and if they go more more in the Sanders direction. Heather Wilhelm, National Review columnist, senior contributor for The Federalist. Thank you so much, Heather. Great to have you. Thank you, Buck. Uh, team, hitting a break. We will be right back. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. What he claims to not understand is the rate. It's the speed at which we're adding carbon dioxide. And I will say, much as I love the CNN, you're doing a disservice by having one climate change skeptic and not 97 or 98 scientists or engineers concerned about climate change. What you got to get is the speed at which things are changing. But that aside, the science march today is about the economy as well as the environment. Although it's Earth Day, and I was here for the very first Earth Day in 1970, if you suppress science, if you pretend that climate change isn't a real problem, you will fall behind other countries that do invest in science, that do invest in basic research. And it's interesting to note, I think, that Article 1, Section 8. Okay, all right, you've had enough. I know, I, me too, me too. That's, that is Bill Nye, the, uh, the so-called science guy, uh, mostly known as a scientist because he wears a lab coat, a bow tie, and kind of looks like what we think a scientist should look like, and has scientific credentials. I'm, I've been reminded of this by uh, smarmy viewers when I've discussed this issue over at CNN, um, that they say, well, where's your degree in science? I said, you're right. I, I don't have an advanced degree in science. I never pretend to, and I certainly am not a scientist. Bill Nye is not a scientist either. Um, he is a has an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. Nothing wrong with mechanical engineering, but it's not a climate scientist. Um, he's not even what we would think of as somebody who has the the general training in science beyond an undergrad degree. This is like me saying, I, I'm I'm a political expert. Buck, the political expert. Well, that would be true based on my profession, my writing, my uh, radio, TV work, but not because I went to uh, a college and got an undergraduate degree in political science a decade or so ago, more than that. Gosh, it's been a long time now. Uh, I I wouldn't sit around like, well, everybody, stand aside. Let me explain how the world works here. I know politics. I have a bachelor's degree in political science, uh, which I do, but who cares, right? Bill Nye has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Who cares? I guess it's a BS, bachelor of science. Same idea. Uh, so he was debating people over the weekend, and CNN, that was a pretty long and, and uh, uninspiring CNN panel. You could watch the whole thing, I'm sure, online if you want to. But it was March for Science weekend. I would have, I thought about this. I would have gone and, and uh, interviewed people and asked them if we should ban, you know, if we should ban H2O because H2O is, you know, we're, we're all just... Uh, there's too much H2O everywhere, and you know we're surrounded by it. It's taking over our lives. And see how many people would go for it at the science march. I would have done something fun like that, but I had social obligations on Saturday. I couldn't get out of. Got to pretend to have a life sometimes, guys. Um, but Bill Nye, who I think also is getting a show now. Uh, I don't know if it's on CNN or somewhere, but he's, I think he's getting a new show. Is one of these climate change people, and he makes the he makes the perfect climate change argument because he hits all of the fallacies one after another there. First of all, the notion that, and by the way, you watch this, you see the guy's just—he's just such a condescending jerk about this. A scientist who wants to explain to me um, nuclear fission, which I don't really understand or know much about, could sit there and just explain it 
and just know that what he's saying is factual and based in science. It doesn't have to be condescending or a jerk or anything else. Could just tell me, right? And a real scientist, I would think, would want to share knowledge instead of want to lecture in a demeaning fashion. But this Nye guy, and this is true of all the climate change people I see going on TV. I never get someone going on TV who's a climate scientist who just wants to talk about what's going on and explain it without being a bit prickly over the whole thing, without being a little nasty or a little snide, a little condescending. If somebody asks a question they don't like, usually it's because they ask a question they don't have an answer to. Which, if a scientist is going to speak definitively on an issue, you would think that they have the answer. But no, they don't have the answer. And so they just get nasty. Where's your science degree? Uh, he for, but we, I, I made a little notation of this as we just played that clip there, because I was thinking about it today as I watched this exchange. This is the climate change argument in summary. A consensus. They say, well, a vast majority of scientists agree. This is a religious belief. As I say, it's a religious belief for people who think they're too smart for religion in the classical spiritual godly sense um they and and they are the high priests of this religion they get to be revered and they get to be important and they get to be necessary and they get to be elevated those who are climate change alarmists um but consensus is not science it's it's this is very basic and uh, shutting down free inquiry is literally the opposite of science. That is the opposite of the scientific method. But they want to shut down free inquiry. They don't even want to answer questions. They demand obedience. Um, and then he talks about the speed with which this is changing. That's really what really matters. Well, they can't get that right either. They can't tell us what the temperature will be, nor do they tell us how quickly the temperature will change to that level. So why should we trust the modeling? And then he says, well, no, it's about the economy. Oh, now Bill Nye's an economist, too. I had no idea. Going completely outside of his so-called area of expertise, which is not even his area of expertise, to tell us what will be good for us economically. Oh, maybe he should go explain to people that have been investing in solar technology for decades that, you know, it's been really profitable all along. Maybe he could go tell the Solyndra people, you're doing it wrong, Solyndra. Oh, wait, he can't because it's out of business, despite hundreds of millions of dollars of loan guarantees from the federal government over under Obama. And... Uh, then he talks about where we should be investing, investing money in this new technology. Uh, so now he's an investment advisor. It's just, it's just all nonsense. It's politics dressed up as science, just like Bill Nye is a pundit dressed up as a scientist. And this is what we get with him, with Al Gore, with all of them. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. We're joined team by Lucian Wintrich. He is the White House correspondent for Gateway Pundit. Lucian, great to have you. Hey there. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, sir. Uh, Let's talk a bit about the latest in uh, all things Trump world. So you're down there at the White House. You got Spicer saying that this is a an artificial benchmark. Hold on, actually, we'll have Spicer say it himself. There is a lot that I think we feel very proud that we've gotten off, gotten taken, done and taken care of. Uh, when you look at the immigration piece in particular, border crossings way down, the number of executive orders and pieces of legislation the president signed. I think we feel very proud of what we've been able to accomplish and fulfill the promises that he's made to the American people. But I think it's it's got to be kept in context. Um, and I think that's there is sort of this artificial number that gets thrown out. Um, 
So on one. Well, I mean, the context is it's 100 days, and you have four years uh, in in your first term. Um, All right, so he's awesome, and he's been awesome, but it's 100 days doesn't really make sense when anyone looks at the fact that it's made up. Okay, fine. What do you think, Lucian? Yeah, I mean, if you look, if you really use that as a benchmark, if you look at any uh, previous presidents, it is it is a pretty ridiculous benchmark, uh, especially with somebody like Trump, who is who is not a career politician. Right. He came into office. He's figuring out how to uh, sort of turn the, the gears of the bureaucracy there. Um, it, yeah, it's ridiculous to say, OK, well, we don't have a wall yet, uh, a border wall um, in its first 100 days or any, any of the other nonsense that they're claiming. And I will say he, he's had he's had a good uh, good number of wins. He's had some losses, but he's he's also had some wins. So I, I think it was neither uh, incredibly successful or, or an amazing dream. Uh, nor was it uh, unsuccessful. What did you make, by the way, of the of the? Uh, I think it was Glenn Thrush from the New York Times saying, because I know you're, you're a White House White House correspondent for a Gateway pundit. Right. Uh, you, Glenn Thrush, the New York Times saying it's actually more, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's better now. It, it's more broad based. Uh, it's a good thing that that the uh, White House press conferences aren't just what they were under Obama. And he's finally come. I was surprised he was willing to say this where he's like, yeah, with Obama, there was a script. He was going to call on five outlets that like him and like his policies. And that was it. Uh, You know, a few months ago, we were being told that Trump was the end of uh, Trump, was the (laughs) the end of journalism. And now you've got a New York Times journalist being like, you know, it actually is more fair. It's it's better to ask questions to different outlets. You you had you had Obama who regulated the press so much. He tried to he, he sued and tried to imprison journalists. And then you have Trump who essentially says, if you want to cover from the White House, come on in. Um, we, we do right now have one of the most open administrations to media, which is, I think, absolutely fantastic. We have a lot of new media entities that are coming in continuously. Um, I know uh, uh, Rebel Media is, is sending one in uh, pretty soon in the coming week. Uh, Cernovich is also, he's supposed to be there uh, Friday to, to cover. So he, he is very, very open. And as you mentioned, what Obama did, he would be very, very selective. He'd say, okay, Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, which are two of the most hilariously biased outlets, uh, and they don't even hide it. He was like, okay, you two can be my, uh, my new media uh, voices from the White House. So it's, I think it's pretty incredible what, uh, what Trump is just, uh, how he's handled the media and how this administration is handled. And, and I do want to just revisit for a moment, because I remember I was covering it here on the show when it happened, the howling and indignation from a few outlets that they weren't included in a like in a, a unofficial press gaggle with Sean Spicer one time, it it was like all of a sudden we were living in in Stalin's Soviet Union. It really was. I mean, it's it's amazing. You know how often Obama did that. I mean, these are not unprecedented things. Obama would have very, very closed uh, gaggles with only favorable outlets. Uh, Trump, even with that one, they were they were a little bit more uh, broader, uh, a little bit broader with. They they had um, entities that that have historically asked questions in the briefing in the actual briefing room that weren't necessarily uh, favorable and that were confrontational. Um, so, the the journalists pushed the term outlet. unprecedented, by the way. 
to almost meaningless levels in the first couple of months, and really the first 60 days, I'd say, of the Trump presidency, because they kept they, there would be this this breathless, oh my gosh, this is unprecedented, and then somebody with access to the Google would res- would respond on Facebook or Twitter with, well, it was unprecedented, except here's a link that it was done by Obama like a year ago, right? <laughs> and so I, I think that was helpful for people to see, oh. They can't just unprecedented is is now the the buzzword for those who who don't want to do any research and just want to scream about how bad Trump is. But you're giving a couple of speeches. Uh, I want to switch to the free speech issue if I can for a moment here, uh, Lucian. You're giving a couple of speeches in New York City this week, Tuesday at Columbia University, Thursday at the Metropolitan Club. Uh, you're going to be speaking about uh, what exactly? Um, well, on Tuesday, uh, it'll actually be myself and Alum on a panel. Uh, we're going to be discussing just sort of cultural and press freedom under conservatives versus under liberals. And how when you have when you have one party or one side of the argument that essentially says, OK, well, you can't discuss uh, this this huge array of topics or you can't express this in culture or the arts, then I mean, that's that, that's that goes against everything that Western culture has stood for since the beginning. And it's very, it's very pre-enlightenment thinking. Uh, so that, that'll be the Columbia talk. And uh, then we have, we have a, a panel of gays at the, um, uh, what is it? New York Republican Metropolitan Republican club on Thursday. And we're going to be discussing essentially how, how the right is, is a lot better for, for gay people in America. Um, free speech right now is 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 literally under assault, and, and I'm I'm using people also just like they misuse unprecedented to mean that it's been done before just by somebody that they liked more. Uh, people will say, you know, you're literally like terrible, but they don't, you know, they don't really understand what they're saying with literally. Um, but in this case, it's true because there, it, it is under assault in the sense that people are attacking people over speech now, and this is being. Uh, this is being supported. There was an article by in the New York Times from an NYU professor. I forget what the title was. It was something about like the, how snowflakes have got it right on some things. That was really in the title of this New York Times piece, <laughs> and that there is speech that's just too mean and we can't have it. And none other than Howard Dean, former Democrat second-place uh, finisher for the Democratic presidential nomination, D, former DNC chairman, does not understand the First Amendment, it would seem, play- it's, first of all, okay, so several things to think about. One, the United States has the most far-reaching protections on speech of any country in the world. Mm-hmm. Two, it's not absolute. Three, there are three support case, uh, court cases, Supreme Court cases that you need to know about. So this is not a clear-cut carrying on the way the right does. The right loves it to, loves to be able to say anything they like, no matter how offensive it is. Well, Ann Coulter has used words that you cannot use on television to describe Jews, blacks, gays, Muslims, immigrants, and Hispanics, I think there's a case to be made that that invokes the Chaplinsky decision, which is fighting words, likely to incite violence, and I think Berkeley is within its rights to make the decision that it puts, puts their campus in, at, uh, in danger if they have her there. I, 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 I have to say, I, I, I studied the Chaplinsky case for a college thesis on college campus speech codes uh, just to make sure that everybody that, that I'd be able to deal with this argument from, Howard, from people like Howard Dean, although for it to come from Howard Dean, is, is pretty appalling because oh, he should know more about the First scary. Amendment. So Chaplinsky is saying that if you get in someone's face and you're screaming every curse in the book and you're whatever, you, you might induce them to, to violence in a one-on-one confrontation. Well, it's know, not Ann know, Coulter not... can't speak, and, by, and it's not even a good Supreme Court precedent. And, but the point is, it's not Ann Coulter saying that we should secure the border. 
But I mean, oh, okay, listen, listen. Are you Ann Coulter? You, if you actually, if you, if you know anything about Ann Coulter, uh, at least she has a quarter of her friends are gay, a quarter are black. Um, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm. She's very uh, friendly with me, and I'm, I'm a, a gay Jew. Uh, they, the left loves throwing out these. La- it's, it's really funny. I mean, you know, I was called uh, anti-Semitic. I, I've even been called uh, homophobic before. Uh, it's it's so fascinating. They have these blanket labels that they've used since the late '60s to to try to uh, basically kind of uh, cut uh, counter arguments out, and they'll keep throwing them around. Such being said, if she if she was anti-Jew, anti-black, whatever, it is we're we're living in America. I mean, it is anybody's right to express their viewpoints, even if you disagree with them, even if they're wrong. But Lucian Howard um, Dean said that. Hate speech is not free speech, or free speech does not cover hate speech. Had time to think about it, then went back on national TV and doubled down on the, yeah, hate speech is not covered by the First Amendment. It's like, forget about Skokie, Illinois, forget about neo-Nazis and Nazis marching. It's it's like he's been living in a different country all this time, and he's not the only one. Democrats, there are a lot of them that buy into this now. I mean, it, it's terrifying. And the second, the second that bureaucrats start actually telling us what we can and cannot say, what they consider to be hate speech versus non-hate speech, um, we're going to be living in a completely different America. And that does need to be uh, – it needs to be fought against and rallied against. And we have seen a lot of that in Berkeley right now with free speech ad- advocates who are actually being attacked, who are being bludgeoned, who are, who are wandering the street, literally bloody. Is there is there any concern over your speech at Columbia University, by the way? Are there any, you know, have you seen like the, are there going to be people marching around all dressed in black saying that they're Antifa or any of that stuff? I mean, you know, I was, I went to uh, probably the best thing about me going to Bard, which is one of the most liberal schools in the nation, is I do know how to uh, really express points in, in a less inflammatory way. Um, I, my last speech at NYU, one of the students stood up and he said, what are your thoughts on Hitler? And obviously, uh, because that's that's a great thing to do with people on the right to to uh, pretend that they like Hitler. So I explained to him how Hitler was. He was a, a socialist. He was a leftist. Yeah, he's a man he of the left. left. So was Stalin. Yeah. In fact, they were really just arguing over what leftists they could get to flock to their banner. And the communists and the national socialists were always in street fights in Germany over the same adherence. <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing to see to see the left uh, emanate. Uh, Nazis emanate fascist, and then, oh my God, there's that wonderful quote: uh, "When when fascism arrives again, it'll it'll uh, label itself as anti-fascism," and that is what we're seeing. That's absolutely what we're seeing today. Yeah, when you have people that are threatening to attack the individuals they disagree with because of their speech, all dressed in black and engaging in mob violence because of ideas they don't like. That these people should look up what the brown shirts did and what they were, and you know they they oh, really yeah. have a very, not even tenuous, an absent grasp of history. Of history, it's not well, even it, there. You you know what happened in Berkeley, right? I mean, I was talking to Lauren Southern, so they had they had the uh, the Trump rally there. They had the sort of pro free speech rally. Um, the cops told all of the the uh, republic, all the conservatives, to disarm. They said, okay, we're we're totally prepared to back you up in a peaceful protest. Uh, obviously, you can't wear masks. You can't carry pipes. You can't have those those uh, wooden sticks with tiny flags at the top of them. So they uh, they accepted the terms. They were very peacefully protesting, or or just standing their ground, really. Antifa, 
swarms around them. The police are told to stand down. Antifa is, is heavily armed, uh, mace, uh, blunt objects. The police are told to stand down by the mayor of, uh, of Berkeley, who, by the way, is a member of multiple Antifa groups. And so you, you have all this Antifa coordinating with the mayor there uh, who attack them. And, I mean, the, the aftermath of that, I don't know if you've seen any of the video, but it's, it's pretty sick to watch. Yeah, it was it's it was total mayhem, and it's it should be. By the way, you'd think that the the so-called liberal left would be if they're going to be up in arms, no pun intended, about anything, it would be this, uh, and they're not. And they they are largely, I think, if not complicit with their silence, if there's not a tacit consent from any of them. You got others like Howard Dean that are just like, yeah, you got got to do what you got to do. Uh, uh, Lucy, we got to leave it there for now. Uh, you got two speeches this week. Anywhere else you want to direct people? TheGatewayPundit.com is where the White House correspondent. Anything else we should know? Um, not really. Yeah, I, uh, we got Columbia Tuesday, uh, Metropolitan Republican Club Thursday, and then Bard College on May 5th. Fantastic. All right, sir. Lucy, we really we really appreciate you joining, man. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, hitting a break here, team. We'll be back in just a few. Tom in Ohio on WRVA. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir. Good evening, Buck. You know, you were talking about the uh, first 100 days. Uh, I, I, I agree with uh, Sean Spicer and a number of other people that it is a false uh, measurement. When you consider uh, 1,461 days in a term, now, that's uh, four years plus one day for a leap year. That's only 6.8% of the total term of presidency. If you're, if you're playing a pro football game, we're talking about four minutes and six seconds into the first quarter. Now, if we take a look at what Trump accomplished already, in my mind, from my perspective, he did a lot just by winning because that kept us from going further into that uh, – over the cliff with that idea of socialism and liberalism, globalism. Plus, he uh, got uh, Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. And even going back to Roosevelt, I think that's where this 100 days started. Roosevelt only had one thing to deal with, and that was the Depression. And they were far enough into the Depression uh, that I think both the Republicans and the Democrats were on board with, with fixing it and fixing it you know, as soon as possible. When you take a look at what uh, Trump has to deal with, or any president in today's world, uh, you know we're talking about terrorism, we're talking about uh, trade issues, we're talking about foreign power aggression, not only Russia and China, but uh, North Korea and Iran uh, getting nuclear bombs. We're talking about a $20 trillion dollar, uh, national debt. We're talking about immigration problems. Uh, and I, I really think that, considering the fact that Trump not only has, g- going into his term, uh, the Democrats against him, he's got the mainstream media against him, he's had... had uh, a number of uh, uh, Republicans against him. So I, I really think realistically um, you have to realize that he's setting the foundation for things to come. And I think any president from these days ought to be looked at, you know, if you're approaching the midterm, say 18 to 21 months, yeah, you're talking about a little bit of trouble because then if the other side gets in and, and gets both control of both houses, well, then it's going to be very difficult for a president to get much accomplished. But we're, we're nowhere near that. And I think it has to be kept in that perspective. Yeah, I agree, Tom. Um, you know, I, I think the, the 100 days is, is totally arbitrary and not even particularly useful. The only place where I have uh, some real real criticism for the administration is actually criticism for the Republican Congress. And that's on the first the first health care effort, because it, it just to me was was a debacle and it was a it was an own goal. I mean, it, it didn't have to be that you know own goal in the soccer sense. It didn't have to be that way. Uh, and some of you are like, soccer buck? Come on. 
Um, but that that's the only thing that I that I believe has been a real uh, a real big miss. I think on the travel ban, some of the other issues that people have brought up as big mistakes. The administration, I don't think they're big mistakes. Uh, I think it's Trump yeah. doing what he said he wanted, doing what he said he would do. Uh, and this will take some time. We'll, we'll see what the tax plan looks like. I was going to talk about that probably in the next hour or a bit. It's coming out this Wednesday. But, but Tom, I think your perspective is well taken, and and uh, and I I agree with where you're coming from. And and I do. And thank you for calling in from Ohio. I, I I would say that every day, it is fair to point out that whatever we got with Trump, and I even had some of my own family members and I talking about this, and they will ri- remind me of this. Whatever we've got with Trump, at least it's not Hillary. Now that can't be used as an excuse for. You know, Trump either selling out on promises or just, you know, messing up and dropping the ball. Uh, But it it is useful context. At least we're not dealing with Hillary. And that would have been. And by the way, it's not just Hillary. It's also all the people that Hillary would have brought in to office with her. It would have been Hillary's secretary of state. It would have been Hillary's treasury secretary. Just look at everything. It would have been like a nightmare from which there's no escape. I will haunt your dreams. Oh, gosh. Terrible. Terrible. We didn't want on that. Hillary? Oh, man. Would have been a rough four years, maybe eight, everybody. Um, so that would have been no fun at all. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, where, well, I'll probably get into some tax stuff and also where are Trump voters in the first 100 days? Uh, and also Afghanistan, third hour, coming up in just a few minutes. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Welcome back, team. We've got Selena Zito on the line. She is a columnist for New York Post, Washington Examiner reporter, and a CNN contributor. Selena, great to have you back. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. Tell me about your uh, your piece in the New York Post, how Trump voters feel about his first 100 days. Well, uh, it, actually, it's, I went back to all the voters that I interviewed from uh, last October, last, last September. I, geez, I can't even remember when it was. I drove cross-country on U.S. 30, which is the Lincoln Highway, which goes uh, from Times Square to San Francisco. And it was the first highway that was built on this country, in this country. And so I went back and talked to those voters uh, that, I, that I interviewed during that trip. And it's sort of like, the best way I can describe it is, it is still November 8th, 2016, and it's midnight, and the people who love Trump are very optimistic and and excited about the future. The people who did not vote for him or still don't like him and still are unimpressed and still sort of shell-shocked. And that is sort of the best way to condense everything that happened. But, but voters who liked him are still happy, some of them more so. And the ones that didn't like him still don't like him. And so those who voted for Trump that you went back to talk to, the uh, overwhelming majority of them, the cons- uh, the consensus among them was that he has delivered so far in his promises. They are happy with their Trump vote. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and, you know, they view things and measure things much differently than than the national media does in that, first of all, 100 days does not mean anything to them. And, and, and I would agree. And I, I agree. I understand why. But yeah. I mean, it's a hundred days. 
I, you know, I, I mean, think of any job that you started. Did you accomplish everything that you set out to do in a hundred days? No. Uh, you know, you know. Now, having said that, he's also it, it, when he was campaigning said, "Well, I'm going to get this, you know, this done in the first hundred days." I think anybody that becomes president, when they walk into that the 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 um, Oval Office and they sit down at that desk, they're like, "Well, dang, <laughs> this is a mess. This is really." Not at all what you know it, it, what I thought it it would be, and you know, and dealing with the with with the House and the Senate is complicated. You've got personalities. You've got 435 different different districts who want 435 different things, and you know it's and then you have you you sort of your your foreign policy is almost developed by the reaction and the behavior of other foreign countries. So it's sort of a you know it's sort of a mishmash of a, of a lot of things, but so take the hundred days off. I, I think the first true measuring stick for any president is the first midterms that they face, and I believe in the modern history there have only been two midterms where presidents have held on to the the, the majority, um, and I think it was seventy four in two thousand and two. Um, outside of that. You know, presidents always sort of lose seats. You, it's the matter of how many of them is is the true measurement of the rejection of the president's policy. Well, let's look at the so saw, at, at some imminent action from the administration. You had Fox News's uh, Chris Wallace asking whether uh, whether the president can can back down in response to the Democrats' obstructionism on on the debt. And here's here's how that exchange went. I mean, I don't understand. Yeah. The president is saying, look, this is, as you say, this is where we're going to set the, the marker for the next four years. Can he back down on the border wall, given the fact that you've set this up? Sure. Let me, let me put it to you this way. This, I, I like you, and I've met you a couple of times. I'm not going to negotiate with you on national television on Sunday. We'll negotiate with the Democrats. The negotiations are not finished yet. We think we've given them a reasonable set of choices, things that they want okay. in exchange but, for. But Director Mulvaney did not answer the question, understandably so, under the circumstances. But... Selena, what do you think? Uh, would Trump supporters be okay with him backing down this time around on funding for a border wall? Look, I think that the Trump supporters, based on you know, co- actually constantly staying in touch with them, they understand that that Washington is, is that there's a culture there that that makes it very difficult to get deals done the first, second, and sometimes third time. It takes a lot of elbowing. It takes a, a lot of Sort of Lyndon Johnson-like uh, pressure, and it, it, and there is not an expectation that they, that it gets done the first, second, or third time. They're they're smarter than we give them credit for, and they're patient because they see him doing things. They see him signing executive orders. They see the the the, the Gorsuch got in, and they're they're they see what happened in Syria, and all these things to them show that that he is willing to get out there and and talk with people that that um, perhaps a Republican president is does not normally negotiate with and and um, and and attempt to find ways to get things done like tax reform like Obamacare and I suspect there's probably going to be some infrastructure spending and that's probably the way that they get Democrats on board. And when I interviewed Joe Manchin earlier this year, you know, he's sort of the the negotiator in chief 
between and liaison between the Democrats and and the White House. And so I think he will use people like him um, and their ability to get a couple people on board to get to get some stuff done. Selena Zito, CNN contributor, New York Post columnist. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you as always. Thanks so much for having me. Um, by the way, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to address this uh, before, but uh, Je- Jeff Sessions, um, Jeff Sessions was was talking about Trump and the administration, and he made some some comment about uh, an, uh, an island in the Pacific with regard to Hawaii, and everyone went all, "Oh my gosh, it's like he's it's like he's negating Hawaii's statehood. How could you do such a thing?" And I think Jeff Sessions' response to it, well, this would have been my response if I were him. Why don't you just call it the state of Hawaii? (laughs) Uh, The the president, um, nobody has a sense of humor anymore. It's totally true. Nobody has a sense. You you hear Stephanopoulos's, I mean, just straining there. Why not call the state of Hawaii? Like, like Hawaii feels so slighted because Jeff Sessions referred to it as an island in the Pacific. It's just... This is this is now part of the game because it gives an additional layer of control over the discussion, over the debate, over argument, um, not allowing for humor. It's it's really an aspect of the totalitarian impulse that the left has uh, when it comes to speech on campus, uh, speech on TV in, in general ideas. They don't want they don't seek to engage with the ideas of the opposition. They have a couple of different playbooks that they run one of them is just shut down speech say it's racist uh shout it down literally shout it down have the government ban it uh, have outside control do not allow for a marketplace of ideas to be the go-to right the go-to is force government force physical force stop ideas you don't like from uh, being pushed or being discussed or debated but Humor is another very, and I've talked to you about this before on the show, but the uh, f- the negation of humor as something that Republicans can use as a tool in discourse is, is not something we should ignore. The fact that every conservative that I, every single conservative that I know feels like they, well, at least the ones that I've talked to about this, I shouldn't say everyone that I know, but the ones that I've talked to about this feels that they have to be very careful when they're making jokes, not just because if they cross an imaginary progressive line of offensiveness, they're going to be repudiated and, and they're going to call for their firing and there's going to be a, a gathering of, you know, sponsor boycotting and all that stuff. But also they pretend that it's not possible for a Republican to make a joke. It's, it's even more than just your joke may be offensive. Now it's also you're, you, you can't make a joke. We saw this with uh, Mnuchin saying, go see, uh, you know, go, go see Lego Batman. I mean, he said it as a joke, but he did say go see Lego Batman. And so he, he wasn't given the benefit of the doubt on that. The Republicans are never given. Conservatives are never given the benefit of the doubt when it comes to a joke. And, and that has a really corrosive effect, not, not just on um, our ability to function well and and to be effective messengers in media, which, of course, I'm concerned with that because it's what I do for a living and I'm, I'm surrounded with it all the time. But it's a means of asserting a, another form of control. You box conservatives in by acting like they, they can't even make a joke. 
oh, you know, that's that, that's not funny, and, and we don't think it's funny because we assume you're being serious because conservatives are always so serious. Humor is a very effective weapon in discourse. Um, there's a reason why tyrants really hate being mocked, right? You go back to even uh, what happened with, with North Korea and Kim Jong-un and that movie. Um, what was the movie called? I forget what it was called. Uh, the uh, Anyway, I'm forgetting the name of it, where they made fun of Kim Jong-un. I don't know. It was like with with Seth Rogen and the other guy who's, yeah. No, was it the dictator? No, was it the dictator? No, that's not right. Um, I forget what the name of the movie is. Anyway, I, I'm forgetting the point here. The point here being that dictators really don't like to be mocked. Uh, that that mockery undermines their power. And not only are Republicans never allowed the leeway to make a joke without running afoul of the PC police, of course. And and humor is really on the humor is like going the way of poetry in this country, which is just an art form that no longer exists. There is so little funny now when you go around and you're supposed to find something to laugh at in your day to day. Other I'm, ta- I'm, I'm talking about outside the realm of uh, sitcoms and, and scripted TV. I, I mean, stand up comedy, nightly news, commentary, comedy, all of that. It's never stuff that we can all laugh at. It's always just making fun of Republicans now. You get online. Colbert and uh, that little British guy. The one who talks like this. John Oliver. Uh, that's right. John Oliver. Um, you go down the list, all of them. And they all make the same jokes. They're not funny. And anytime a Republican makes a joke, even if they get away with it, and it is funny and in good taste, they have to, they're, they're, you're on notice. You're always being put on notice. And here, Jeff Sessions. Look, Jeff Sessions is not funny, okay? I'm not trying to. Jeff Sessions is not a funny guy. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, seems like a very good man to me, but he's not a funny guy. Um, but, you know, made a kind of offhand comment, and it just goes to show you that the media is now the annoying high school dean that just wants to run around and give everybody detention all the time. That's what they've become well, with Republicans. That's what they've become. That's how petty and annoying they are. And so I, I'd like to give Republicans a lot of the benefit of the doubt. One of the problems, or, you know, I, I always give them benefit of the doubt, um, but one of the problems, and Democrats too, by the way, if I think a joke is made in good faith and, uh, you know, I'll, one, I'll allow it to be a joke. I won't pretend, oh, there's no way he was kidding. And two, I won't always run around yelling about how offended I am, which is just crazy. One of the problems, though, I think one of the things we have to confront now, the reality of um, Trump's ability to make jokes versus everybody else, or Trump's ability to speak about things and make jokes that other people can't, you know, you better be economically independent if you're going to go public, whether you're a politician in the media or anywhere else, and just speak your mind. Um, that's one thing about Trump that doesn't translate, unfortunately, to the rest of us. And if you're a billionaire, you can have everybody call you a racist for a week or two, and it doesn't really matter, right? But if you're barely paying your bills, all of a sudden making a joke, whether you're uh, a no-name congressman or you're in the media in some capacity or just you're an, an everyday citizen working in the private sector, you, know, you make a joke, you risk your career. And it just shouldn't be that way. So I just thought it was... I know it's a, a long, a long uh, digression here based on Stephanopoulos. But, you know, couldn't you just call it a state? You know, just, just calm down. You know, calm down, Stephanopoulos. All right. You know, we don't. We don't really, You know, the outrage meter it, it can't always be full. You know, so, sometimes you can just let it go. Uh, all right, hitting a quick break. We'll be right back. Well, we're supposed to find out about the uh, tax plan, the administration's tax plan here in the next couple of days, and. Uh, from what I understand, it will deal first and foremost with the corporate tax rate. Nothing 
all that surprising there. I just have to say I'm uh, – well, they're going to push the corporate rate to – or Trump wants – this is just a really a mission statement. It's not a memo. It's a mission statement. Um, Trump wants – did anyone catch the Jerry Maguire reference? I don't know. Just thought, just thought I'd throw that in there. Kind of an underrated movie, really, in retrospect. I, th- I thought it was pretty good. Trump wants to uh, push the corporate rate to 15%. And uh, he is going to also give a massive tax cut for the American public in general. And they're willing to do this even if it means a loss of revenue. Okay. Uh, that's a good thing. I, I don't like the term revenue. Uh, as an aside here, I, I find it um, uncomfortable. I find it uh, puzzling. I, I do not like when the government's so-called revenue is referred to in a way, well, first just by using the term revenue, but also the way it's written about it's as though that's the money that we owe. Because the government says that's the money we owe to it, that's owed to it in perpetuity. You know, well, the government's expectation is that next year we'll give them this. Well, no, the, the Congress sets the rate in the tax code for a whole bunch of different things. So if that changes, then that's what the government gets. It shouldn't be thought of as. And then you start to get into, well, that's because all the spending is on autopilot right now in the budget, which it is. It's on autopilot. And over 50 percent of it is in Medicare and Social Security. So there's that which nobody is touching and nobody even talks about touching these days. Or I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people talk about it. Certainly the Trump administration is not yet talking about that. And the 15% corporate tax rate, here's how this is supposed to go. And i got to think about this, and we'll bring on some uh, tax experts, or at least a tax expert. Bring on tax experts might be a little too much taxation talk this week, but we'll bring on somebody. Who can walk us through a little bit of the nuts and bolts of what this would mean? Okay, but here's the the basics of it, right? So you got a roughly th- what is a thirty percent tax rate currently for corporations, which is the highest in the industrialized world. That's the uh, talking point. That it, it's true. I don't mean to say it's a talking point as in it's uh, somehow dishonest, but that's that's what we hear. That's the the bullet point that's out there, and they'll lower it to fifteen percent. And the idea here is that that would mean that there's a lot of investment into companies. Companies will reinvest those profits, and that will mean an expansion of business, uh, well, expansion of businesses across the board, and that will mean more more hiring. More hiring means more jobs. More jobs means growth. Growth is good. Everything is great. Uh, I think that's that all sounds lovely, and I believe that is all sound thinking. Uh, a couple of things, just because I'm, I'm keeping it real, uh, businesses may uh, reinvest the money that they get as a result of this tax break, and many of them will. Some of them will probably, uh, this value may go to shareholders before it goes to anybody who is at the labor end of the spectrum. So the impact it'll have on jobs, I'm not saying it won't. I'm just saying, let's see. I also have... Uh, my concerns, you know, it was very well about the fact that this isn't dealing with the individual rates, or at least I haven't heard what it will do for individual rates just yet, other than say that there's a big tax cut coming for individuals. Um, somebody messaged me, a, a, a member of Team Buck, and I always appreciate that. You can do that. You can just go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, and you can either post on the page or you can always send messages. I mean, 
Uh, the whole team here can see it. I'm not the only one, but I, I will read it when I can, and I'll get back to you when I can. Um, and I get I get in there and read them as, as often as, as possible. Uh, a woman messaged me and said, you know, on taxes, I've been hearing the same I've been hearing the same thing for 40 years. And you know what? She's right. She's right. And I don't understand how it's possible for so many uh, pundits and analysts and people on the on the right, conservatives with really large followings, big megaphones, the ability to direct the national conversation, how there's not more outrage over the fact that people are paying what they're paying in taxes right now and that the tax code is as inefficient and unfair as it is, I, it is beyond me. I, I don't understand. This is... The belly of the beast. This is the beginning of so many of the other problems that we have with government. I mean, this is the start of so many federal ills. And yet, you know, we're kind of like, yeah, we'll do the corporate rate and we'll see. I'm going to give Trump time on this. I'm not trying to say it's not going to happen or that he's not. But I'm just going to be watching this very closely. Um, because to me, this shouldn't be. You had, uh, I think it was either Mnuchin or Mulvaney saying today that you should be able to do your taxes on a large postcard. Okay, let's get a bill forward that would let people do that. H- how about that? You know, it's it's time to start thinking from a conservative, radical perspective. Meaning that to be truly conservative when you're talking about taxes right now would in fact be a radical position and a radical departure from what we have. Got to embrace that and do it. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. All right, everybody, welcome back. Big news from Afghanistan in the last few days. A mass casualty attack killed more than 160 Afghan soldiers last week. It was up in the north. It involved an infiltration of an Afghan military base near Mazar-e-Sharif. And the Taliban uh, is, of course, ascendant. You also have the Islamic State active. And I want to get into all of the latest in Afghanistan in the aftermath of this attack, where you have two top Afghanistan military officials have resigned right after this. So it is major news coming out of that conflict. We're joined now by Zach Asmus. Um, He is a writer for SoftRep. You can check out his latest on SoftRep.com. He's a former Air Force combat con- uh, controller. He did a deployment uh, in 2014 to 2015 in Afghanistan and uh, is going to talk to us a bit about what he saw there. He's got real eyes on the ground uh, experience. We'll bring him in now. Zach, th- uh, thanks so much. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me. First off, when you uh, saw read about this in- infiltrator attack uh, up near uh, Mazar in northern Afghanistan, not uh, typically over the course of the conflict where you see the uh, most complex and and uh, deadly attacks happening. What was what was your sense of what happened here? Um, well, exactly, you hit the nail on the head there. It's it's sort of abnormal to hear about something up in uh, Mazar Sharif or or Mez. Um, it's pretty tightly controlled by the provincial governor up there, and it's an area that you know I've spent little time in, but some of my colleagues have spent a lot of time there, and they felt extremely safe. Um, guards posted everywhere, so. For an attack to happen there versus Kabul or, you know, down in Kandahar, Helmand, or even east in, you know, Nangarhar, Jalalabad, it's uh, it's rare. So, you know, it's a signal that, you know, things may be changing a little bit. This is the single deadliest Taliban attack uh, in the entire war so far. I mean, in terms of a one-off engagement, number of people killed. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, they've been conservative with the numbers. You, you mentioned 160. Um, I, you know, I've heard reports of it climbing over 200. So it's an absolutely, you know, devastating blow. Uh, so you, this was on Friday. It was right after Friday prayers. You had Taliban infiltrators dressed as Afghan military just rolled in uh, in, in a convoy. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of unarmed Afghan troops who were just walking out of Friday prayers, and and they were just just gunned down, unarmed, fish in a barrel, no way to escape. Right, absolutely, and that's that's bothersome. Um, you shouldn't have a military base where you know nearly 100 percent of the uh, people stationed there lay down their arms and and disappear to prayer, or you know start sipping tea, or you know the the whole culture. I think. Um, kind of needs to change if they're going to be serious about their security. Tell us about that. I know that you have a particular point of view here because you were an Air Force combat controller and you were with uh, special forces in Afghanistan and down in Helmand province. You think that while we often hear that the Afghan military um, is being trained up to take the fight to the Taliban themselves, there are structural problems with that approach. And you're telling me now that there are also some uh, problems in the very basic attitudes of the soldiers that are supposed to be doing this fighting for the Afghan side. Right. You know, you look at guys now, the exceptions, of course, are the commandos, which is our equivalent of, uh, or the Afghan equivalent of our ranger force, and the, um, you know, the Afghan special forces, which is the direct equivalent of our, you know, Green Berets modeled after the same type of uh, unconventional warfare and small unit tactics. But if you just look across the board at the standard um, Afghan army recruit, you know, he's, he's doing this for a paycheck. It, it really, to most of these guys, it's not much more than that. And their loyalty is really to their hometowns and not really to the nation of Afghanistan. So when when they join the army, they're not joining it as a career. They're not maybe even doing it, you know, for patriotic reasons. So it's kind of hard to understand as Americans, you know, who appreciate the patriotism in, in our military to understand how, uh, you know, much of a novice group a lot of these guys are. You, you said that there sometimes there'll be hours at a time when Afghan milita- Afghan army will just lay down weapons, uh, pray and drink chai for hours, hours on end. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That's that is the culture. Um, you know, you pray multiple times a day, uh, you know, sit around with the guys and have some chai tea or whatever and and kind of kick it. And that's, uh, you know, something that's obviously not going to stand up to, you know, this was just they're just saying 10 or a dozen uh, militants that came in and, and slaughtered over 200 people. So obviously there's there's a problem there. Talk to me about rules of engagement on the U.S. side. We've got 9,800 or so U.S. troops in country still. You were there just a couple of years ago, uh, and you felt like hands were tied. How so? Yeah, well, you know, in direct contrast to seeing us uh, get clearance, whoever that JTAC was that got to drop a 22,000-pound bomb, you know, I was... Uh, I was trying my best just to get a, you know, 110-pound or 500-pound bomb dropped, um, you know, even in some pretty stressful, dire dire situations. So, you know, at the end of 2014, as we were kind of leaving and, and assuming this advi- purely advisory role, um, you know, if you can call it that, it was uh, it was pretty hard. It was pretty hard to do your job, pretty frustrating sometimes. You'd see some guys walk away. 
So, you're, uh, so there were active, there were firefights underway, and you had guys like yourself, uh, four deployed air combat controllers, and you would get, you get waved off. You'd say, "Look, we 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 need to drop a five hundred pounder in here," and base would just say, "Nope, sorry." Um, yeah, it wasn't quite that cut and dry, but you know, you you really had to watch your wording, and you had to make sure that you know there are absolutely no civilian casualties, you know, possible, which is very difficult to do in a wartime, you know, stressful environment. Um, so you, you just had to watch what you say. I mean, you had to really sit down and almost become a lawyer yourself to understand how to do your job. So, uh, so and so you think the Moab drop is a signal? People have always talked about it as a signal to, well, of course, the Taliban, to the Islamic State, who Islamic State in Afghanistan, is who it was dropped uh, on, uh, but also to our enemies around the world that there is a renewed seriousness and a, a uh, renewed dedication to standing up to enemies and doing whatever is necessary, but it also gives our guys on the ground in Afghanistan a sense that they will have uh, more freedom to engage the enemy as they see fit. Right. You know, and that's what I've heard from my uh, active duty comrades right now. They're, you know, everyone's pretty excited. They've got a good feeling about letting the, the military actually, you know, be controlled by the military and do its job over there. We're at war and we don't need to be fighting with one hand tied behind our back. So, uh, definitely the Moab drop is a signal and a shift um, towards a more lenient approach, you know, by this administration. And I think it gets our guys excited, guys that have been, you know, on six to 12 tours in you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and haven't been able to really do their job. Now I think they're getting some freedom of maneuver. And you saw what was going on with the Islamic State in country in the in the early days. What can you tell us about the ISIS threat in Afghanistan and how it has evolved? Um, it's growing. There's, you know, there's little pockets that are isolated in, in Afghanistan. There's places that, uh, because we used to have a large troop presence there, you know, over 100,000 at some point, that those places would be regularly patrolled. But now that we've just kind of pulled back to just uh, a few main spots, it's pretty easy now for um, ISIS to come into these places where they might sense some sort of disloyalty towards the government and, you know, grow a training camp and recruit from there. And what do you think would have to happen in country to turn things around right now? You have Helmand in, uh, Helmand in part completely under Taliban control. Other parts of the country are at least partially under Taliban control. You got the top U.S. general in Afghanistan in the last 24 hours, just saying that he would, quote, he would not refute, that was the quote, reports that Russia was providing support, including weapons, to the Taliban. What do you make of what we need to do now? Right. I think that is uh, extremely damaging to our to our hopes to outright win a war in Afghanistan. When you have, you know, first of all, just, you know, us fighting the Taliban with the reduced force is, you know, difficult, at, you know, at least. So, at, at best. So, when you find out that there's potential that Russians are directly, you know, funding the, you know, our enemy over there is, it's pretty devastating. So, I mean, we've got to, I don't know the exact answer to how you end this thing, but there's got to be some sort of an agreement between us and the Taliban. I mean, there has to, you're just never going to completely defeat the Taliban. There's always going to be this, this movement that inspires the, the poor, you know, rural people to take a paycheck and fight. They don't even know who they're fighting. And those of those of the uh those of your your brothers and sisters in uniform who are still in, I'm just wondering if you ever hear from them about specifically uh, whether they'd be how they'd feel about just deciding that Afghanistan they've had enough. 
um, you know, that, that we, sh- we shouldn't continue to just do what we're doing there? Or, or are they committed to this to the very end, no matter what? Um, you know, you know, my friends in special operations in particular are definitely committed till the end. I mean, you go over there and it's not just it's not just another country. It's not just a place on the map. It's a place maybe you've been before. Maybe you've got a, a translator that you worked with a couple years ago that you see again and you understand the hardships that the, the good guys are fighting over there 24-7, 365, not just on these four- to six-month tours. So I know in particular, you know, I can speak for combat controllers, SF guys, um, you know, SEALs when they're there, MARSOC, whoever, uh, you know, Rangers. This is definitely a place that they want to be, you know, till it's better. They don't want, no one wants to leave with it half done. Zach Asmus is a writer for softrep.com. He's a former Air Force combat controller, served at Afghanistan. Zach, thank you so much uh, for your service and for your time, sir. Buck, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to bucksexton.com. That's bucksexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. And now he's vacationing. He's living his best life. I mean, it's 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 pretty amazing. You know, he's he's parasailing, he's jet skiing, he's wearing jeans, he's he's going to Starbucks. Is he gonna ever come back to politics? I mean, I don't. He has to, right? Bernie. I mean, I think if you ask Bernie, he would say no. I think he he even said he wasn't a Democrat the other day. Yeah. Um, Tom Perez. I think you know he is. I think Barack Obama is probably still the leader of the Democratic Party, even though he is sort of on a hiatus right now. Um, I hope Hillary comes back, but she more than deserves some time out to sort of regroup. Barack Obama back in the in the public eye after a three month long vacation, including on a on a, on a super yacht, from what I saw in the press. Uh, Barack Obama still the leader of the Democratic Party, according to this one pundit on. CNN, I, I guess I didn't factor that in when we were talking earlier about, oh, you know, Bernie Sanders. Why not go to the to the left uh, with Bernie Sanders and try to use that to create enthusiasm for the Democrat base? And why not move in that direction? Well, and also I've asked who's the who's the leader of the Democratic Party in the sense that why are they still propping up the Clinton brand as though it's a winner for them? Clinton Brand hasn't been a winner since 2000. We're going to say, well, okay, you could say the Senate election, I guess, but uh, it's not really, it doesn't really matter at the national level. And being a junior senator from New York is not enough to build a political dynasty on. It was, of course, all Bill. Hey, you know, he got it done for eight years for the Democrats. And they thought that maybe they could have a repeat of that with Hillary Clinton for eight years. And now they obviously can't. And they're even flirting with the notion of trying to elevate Chelsea Clinton into a similar role. And that would be, wow. I I think the media has reached the limit of its powers with trying to turn somebody who is clearly as entitled a human being as I can think of in the United States uh, into a figure of public acclaim and even adoration. I just, beyond the media, right? The media loves... Uh, Chelsea, but that's just an extension of their love for Hillary and Bill. Uh, they can't, I don't, well, I shouldn't say can't. Unlikely they'll be able to create a successful political brand around Chelsea Clinton. I just don't see it. And so then we get back to, well, who is going to be kingmaker in the Democratic Party? Who's going to be the one that is in the position 
to, if not run, help determine who will be the standard bearer. And it's not just the standard bearer. It's not even just a question of the the individual. It's also uh, worth noting that it's the ideas, too, that will be at the center of the Democratic Party as it tries to uh, regain prominence uh, in the, well, tries to regain power, I should say, not prominence, in the House and the Senate. And Barack Obama is going to play a very big role in all this. Uh, we had eight years of Obamaism. Now we've had 100 days of Trumpism. And I think the notion that Barack Obama will sit by, as President George W. Bush did, out of respect uh, for the next presidency, for Barack Obama. And also, I will say, I believe that George W. was was beaten down by the presidency. Um, he He looked... Very different at the end of it. He had been through a lot, and uh, he was not the same. Not the same guy after eight years of just the media. You know, we forget this now because they're always calling Trump such a, a, a racist and a liar. The media called George W. Bush stupid, just relentlessly, and it was completely unfair and unmerited. Um, but it became a comment that the easily led and not very intelligent people would hear and go, oh, he's so stupid, Bill, Bill, you know, George Bush is so stupid. Um, but that was, anyway, uh, moving back to, to Obamaism and where we are now, uh, there's going to be a lot more Obama in our, in our near future is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, you're going to see a lot of Obama out there. He's going to have the media at his, at his, uh, at his beck and call. They, they will... Whenever Obama wants to give a speech, it'll be a well-covered speech. Whenever Obama has anything to say, it'll... And right now, we're being told that he's trying to follow the George W. Bush model of not criticizing your successor in the in the uh, Oval Office. Although, I guess presidencies aren't really... It's not really a successor, but you know what I mean. The follow-on presidency, the next presidency. Uh, I don't think that's going to last, and it's quite clear to me why um, he or how that will change. He uh, said, or Josh Earnest, I should say, his former spokesman in the uh, White House as a press secretary, came out and talked about, well, at some point, Obama may just have to really intervene against Trump, you know, because. I think what would motivate President Obama to re-engage in the political debate is if we saw the federal government start to cross some clear red lines in terms of long-observed norms and values uh, that, uh, you know, frankly, I think that we started to take for granted. So, What would those be? I would be fascinated to hear what these long-observed norms are of conduct that Trump might violate that would force Obama to come down from, you know, Mount Olympus or whatever. I mean, you know, Obama to to come down among the the mere mortals and let us know that he's still there watching Trump's every move. You know, I I just, I don't understand how anybody, (laughs) how anybody can see uh, this going in any direction other than Obama being a voice of the Democrat Party. That's what we're going to see. That's what will, I think, almost certainly happen here for the uh, for the foreseeable until they have somebody who can really be uh, central to the party. So uh, we've we've managed to, I think, begin to feel free of the Clinton, the specter of Clintonism. 
but we will not be free anytime soon of Obama. We've had a short respite here, a hiatus, but Obama is going to uh, be back and be very clearly uh, oppositional to Trump. That's my expectation here. Um, got a lot to already talk about tomorrow in mind, including uh, some details about Obama's Iran deal that I'm going to get into in some detail with you, as well as everything else that will be happening. Uh, please download the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton with America now on iTunes. Also, BuckSexton.com. Hook me up with your email. Until tomorrow, Shields High, everybody. <laughs>